Dispatch Boys. Overlooking Phoenix. From high above in the Star Worldwide Network Studios. Badge Boys. Stories, insight, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. And now, here they are, the Badge Boys. Welcome to this week's episode of Badge Boys. I am retired Phoenix Police Officer Jason Schechterly. And I'm a retired silent witness Sergeant Darren Birch. Really excited this week. Several weeks ago, y'all might remember we had a very special guest, former detective Cliff Jewell, talk about the serial shooter, serial murder case we had back in 2005, 2006. Well, we want to welcome Cliff back to talk about a case that is near and dear to my heart just from my career standpoint, understanding the human side of being a detective. But also, for all of you out there, this is one of the saddest unsolved cases we've had in Phoenix in the past couple of decades. So I'm excited to welcome Cliff back and talk to him. But first, we'll let Darren, uh, has a lot of experience with this case from this time in Silent Witness. Tell us about the Macaroo case. Yeah, you really touched upon it, uh, Jason, when you said this was near and dear to your heart, because it was also near and dear to my heart for complete unrelated reasons we deem in, in fact you were talking about the case and went oh my gosh you're talking about the macaroo case right and then i find out cliff jewel who i've known 33 years uh he he was my training officer my very first training officer so it's all his fault i'm here <laughs> uh he was the um one of the crime scene detectives on the case and right. then a buddy of mine if you read the book uh twist but true bill shimmers a real close friend of mine was lieutenant he was lieutenant patrol on the scene so there's so many and we all had such a heartfelt pain on this case because it was dealing with a single father who was driving his son his toddler to um um daycare at night so i'm going to read you the silent witness flyer on august 22nd 2003 at approximately 10:07 a.m mac rue was shot and killed by occupant or occupants in a small white car while mac was driving his vehicle westbound on I-10 freeway between approximately 6th, 7th Avenue and 75th Avenues in Phoenix. His three-year-old son was in the car, thankfully unharmed. Mac was driving a 1999 dark green Plymouth Neon. And then it uh, goes on to talk about calling silent witness. And the only suspect descriptions we had was two Hispanic males in a small white car. What was really horrific about this case that really, I think, touched everybody's heart is the 911 call because Mac Rue was able to not only control the vehicle and not get into a collision and kill other people on the freeway, but he was able to pull off to the side of the road, call 911, and get help for his son and him. Sadly, that 911 tape was also the last words that Mac ever spoke. You actually hear him dying on the 911 tape, and we will play that at the end of this segment. And God bless that dispatcher. Oh, uh, gosh, we, absolutely. We, you just can't imagine what they go through knowing, and she's had to carry that through. She was the last person to yeah, see it was him. Actually a, it was actually a male. Uh, when you hear it, it's a male dispatcher, but oh, you're right, almost 99% of them are females. Yeah, uh, This because they're much better at it than Yeah, and <laughs> it, God, it, was, it was so sad at one point, and you'll hear this 911 tape at one point during it, um, the dispatchers definitely try and get the son on the phone, not realizing his son, you know, is is not verbal and, and is not going to be able to right. provide any intelligence. Um, and now I'm going to bring in Cliff. Cliff, what do you remember? I know we're dating you. This was how many years ago? 
15 years ago. Yes. Um, tell us what you remember about that crime well, I was scene. in the office, and my squad happened to be on call for homicides and uh, was sent out and saw this huge contingent of DPS, Phoenix PD, uh, on the side of the road, and uh, I ended up being responsible to do the, what we call the crime scene investigation, even though it's really not, I guess, the vehicle would be the crime scene. And as I recall, there were two, uh, there was one distinct bullet hole in the car uh, and a, a second one uh, on the passenger's door. So that round came through, I believe came through Mac, Rue, uh, and exited his body and then embedded itself in the passenger's side door. A second round hit the door jam just under the window uh, near the, uh, the confluence of the front and back seats. Uh, there had Mac's son, I think he was three years old at the time, was sitting right there in a car seat and fortunately was not... Just lucky. Uh, oh, absolutely lucky. And, and the fact that Mac had the wherewithal uh, to be able to guide the car, uh, he's taken, and he knows he's taken a fatal hit uh, because it went through both sides of his chest, pierced his lungs and his heart, uh, and he had maybe a minute uh, and probably, uh, you know, I, I'm sure he had passed long before rescuers got there. Yeah, in the 911 tape, you can actually literally hear him saying, I'm dying, I'm dying. And then, unfortunately, there's a long pause where he did die, and then you can't, that's when you can't underestimate the power of fatherhood protection. That's oh, not proof. Absolutely. A bullet went through both of his lungs, pierced his heart. He guided the car to safety, and he called it in to get people there to help his son. That's it's just unbelievable to hear. It is because most people get involved in a fender bender and and are completely. Panic. Panicked, and uh, he was able to get that. And it was, it, it was a busy time of the day, as I recall. It was midday, so there was a lot of traffic on the freeway. And I think the problem that we have um, as investigators is you want to solve these cases so badly. Um, but here we have what ended up being 10 miles of freeway. You bring up a good part because while the witnesses that were talking about seeing these two vehicles, the, the white small car chasing the dark green um, along I-17, and for those of you outside, because this place nationally, uh, we're talking in, in the middle of Phoenix, this one freeway that goes north and south, and they're going back and forth, clearly what we believe was a road rage. Yes. And then it then transfers onto another freeway that's going uh, east and west. Um, and so we're talking eight miles of this, this chase that poor Mac Rue was involved in before his ultimate death. Exactly. And how many people saw that happen? And not that many calls came in. I don't recall. Um, it was, I think it was after the fact that people started calling and saying, hey, we saw, we saw that. We end up getting involved with Silent Witness. Now, this is before my tenure, so now we're talking about, you know, Paul Benzone coming in. Um, and taking, Sheriff Paul Benzone. Sheriff Paul Benzone with the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office. Um, they, were, they, again, were putting out soliciting tips from the public. And like you said, Cliff, that's when 
the tips were coming in because it was noteworthy. How many times have you driving, I'm talking to you listening audience, how many times have you been driving and you see something, either a drunk driving and, and it, it stays with you. You think about that long, long after the time the Elma is over with and to see this chase going and it was at high speeds, this chase and shooting. And, you know, it's, I often think to myself, uh, I used to drive my wife nuts when we were driving around town and I'd say, that car's got expired plates and it'd be like four cars in front of us. But I could see that little tab and knew what color it's supposed to be. We as police officers pay a little bit more attention to detail than the average uh, motoring public. Right. So my thought would have been for a road race, the first thing I'm gonna do is grab a pen and write down a plate number, and then if something happens, at least I've got that uh, to help with. And speaking of grabbing a pen, if you're listening on, I just want to um, chart this down, because again, we're talking uh, August, so it's the middle of summer, 2003, at approximately 10 a.m. when this occurred, but I want to give you those descriptions again, because, you know, you may have information about two guys talking about this crime. Because one thing that everyone in this table knows is bad guys love to talk. They talk before the crime, they talk during the crime, and they talk well after. And all these people have exes that they might have shared information with. So what we're talking about is two Hispanic male subjects in a small white car. Now, that's not much of a description. But when you talk about the area that they're driving in, so they're driving southbound on I-17 around back in the school area i think believe is where it kind of started the, the road I, rage. I think he got on the mac got on the freeway at camelback thank you and so they're southbound and then they take the uh the interchange uh for i-10 westbound and then they get into the area of 6th 7th avenue and 75th avenue and that's where the fatal shots occurred uh, and then again mac was driving a 1999 dark green plymouth neon so that event may stick in your mind, maybe, or maybe you know someone that has talked about this crime, about, you know, because this, this, this made headline news here in the Valley about, about the right. single father that was killed on the side of the road with a child. Uh, it really did touch a lot of people's hearts. And in fact, that's why it was kind of interesting when Jason approached me on this story and he's telling it to me, I went, oh my God, that's Mac Rue. Yeah, and Cliff, I'd love to, talk to you about that i i remember being a brand new detective and again i didn't have the skill set for it or uh the training or anything else so at the time i'm maybe listening to jail tapes i'm running to court get a subpoena signed or i'm just doing little things to help the guys i was working right. and i was fortunate enough over time through training and some great supervisors i got to where i was uh the scene investigator a lot on a lot of cases never a lead detective but I'm, I remember being very new, and it was about a year after this case had happened, and you and I were talking, and I'm sure I was asking a lot of naive questions and things about what's it like when you see you know, this or this and try to work these cases. And I remember you bringing this case up and talking about the impact that it had on you, both personally and professionally. And, and I want the listening audience to understand, you know, several weeks ago we talked about the serial shooter, and... All the cases are just as important. You work on them just as hard, and you want to solve them. But when you have a case like this where a young father is killed, he protected his child, he did some amazing things that night, 
And now, all these years later, we have a 19-year-old kid out there who deserves and probably wants in his adulthood justice for his dad. On the human side, how does that affect you? Well, it's, it's always the hardest is to deal with cases involving kids. And I've dealt with far too many over the years. And it, it just seems like uh, you have a child who's completely innocent of everything and came that close to dying and a father that was capable of doing what he did. I mean, it's a Herculean effort on his part to do what he did. And, uh, you know, you go home at night and you look at your kids and go, but for the grace of God, and, and you continue and go back to work the next day. But those cases always stick with you, and I've got a hundred stories of cases that are similar that involve children, and it's always the, uh, you know, we recently had one in the Valley where a young baby was shot in the shoulder. Yes. You know, and I know those officers what their reaction was and well what a lot of people might take for granted also is you, you know you're working that case and it would be great if because doing a homicide doing that kind of detective work it's 24 hours a day and you would if you could you could you'd work them all but the sergeant isn't going to say hey this is your one case work at 100 hours a week until it's solved whether that's tomorrow or seven years from now four days later five days later you could have a brand new case that you have to devote a little bit of time to while you're still thinking about the other one. And those start to pile up as time goes by. Well, they do. And, you know, when we were a few weeks ago talking about the serial shooter case, when I investigated that case, I was still on rotation. I, I Which also, means he's still receiving more cases. I, yes. Exactly. And I, I responded to 24 other homicides during that time that I had to work as well. So... Uh, you know, after a while, these these cases build up to the point you go home and, uh, you know, you lay in bed trying to go to sleep and you can't because you're thinking about what could I have done, what should I have done, and what can I do to to push this further. And, and sometimes it's just the public that is the impetus that we need to solve a lot of these cases because you can't tell me in the middle of the day Somebody didn't see something involving Mac's case. Uh, and the longer time expands, the more chance that these two guys talked about it and more opportunity that we have secondary, third individuals that know about the case. Yes. Right. It, the problem with freeway shootings is, are they traveling through the state? So we don't even know if they belong local. here. That's right. We didn't get a license plate number. In fact, as I recall, the only decent weapon description was of a Mac 10 semi-automatic or automatic pistol. And because and you, Mac was shot through and through, you recovered no bullet, correct? Uh, we d I did recover a 9mm bullet from the passenger door. Or from the door. Okay. But like you said, when you, when you first start talking, Cliff, you talked about the crime scene. It was, well, this is part of the crime scene because the real crime scene was drove away. Right. And do we close the freeway down? For eight miles to look for shell casings that may or may not have left the vehicle and sometimes you're just not 
able to do things like that. Right? Yeah, yeah. I want to give a real quick shout out to Mac Rue's mother. Uh, I've had her on the radio show several times, and I always want to warn her when the we're going to play the nine one one tape. And so uh, this is to you, um, Linda Smith. Uh, again, we're still never going to give up on this case between old detectives and now young detectives. You know, um, a Herring case as a cold case. But uh, now is a good time for us to transition to the 911 tape. I do want to caution you, the listening audience, that this is extremely sad. You will hear the last words of Mac Rue as he calls 911 to report that he's been shot and that he's dying. Here's that tape. 911, what is your emergency? I've been shot. Where are you? Where are you? I'm on I-10 on Wilson 83rd Avenue. I was on west. Okay, I-10. Okay, I-10. My son. I-10 west. Please help. Stay on the line. Please. Please. Sir, stay on the line for DPS. I can't feel anything. My son's in the car. Help me. Please. Oh, sir, where are you? I-10 and where? I-10, almost at 83rd Avenue. Please help me. Okay, stay on the line. I'm, I'm, I'm fading, sir. What type of vehicle are you in? I'm dead. I'm dying, man. What oh, type man. of, sir, what vehicle are you in? I'm in a green Dodge Neon. My son's in the car. Oh, man, I can't feel anything. Okay, which direction are you going, sir? Sir, which direction are you going? Sir, what direction are you going? Sir. Sir, which... Sir, which way are you facing? Help! Help! Sir, you need to tell me what direction you're going. Sir, what direction... Put your son on. Sir, put your son on. We'll be right back. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. I remember the moment. moment. I'll never forget that moment. As long as I live. As long as I live. Several of us were working to rescue a family. The house collapsed on top of the cellar door and trapped them. We had to use Humvees and heavy machinery to move massive trees and debris. We got them out. We helped a lot of people out. It felt good to know I could really make a difference. Because I'm a citizen soldier in the National Guard. Be there the moment your community needs you. Learn more at NationalGuard.com. Sponsored by the Arizona National Guard. Aired by the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. Move over, AZ. Arizona's move over law requires you to move over or slow down when you drive past any vehicle pulled over with flashing lights. Remember, every vehicle, every time. Move over, AZ. Sponsored by ADOT in partnership with the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. You're listening to Batch Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Batch Boys. Welcome back to Batch Boys, everybody. That was an incredible segment on the case with Macro from all those years ago. I am just praying someday that gets solved. And for those of you who have clicked over or will listen to that 911 tape, it's it's chilling. And I can probably say I would never listen to it again. It's so tough. Um, that gives us a chance to talk about something else that is uh, a very tough thing for police officers that that see. I would say the most common call you're going to go on as a patrol officer is domestic violence. And you will go on repeated domestic violence calls at the same 
location. And I still teach at the academy, and I always encourage these recruits because I teach victimology. And the main thing about victimology is the incident itself is bad. The incident itself is traumatic, and it starts with, of course, the perpetrator, the suspect. But then people can get re-victimized. And especially with domestic violence, you go somewhere two, four, six, eight times, and as a human being, you might be prone to say something like, you know, why are you still here? Why are you still in this situation? And you can never, ever speak to people like that. You can never, you, you don't know what's going on behind closed doors. Think of it as victim bashing. Don't do it. it yeah, do not ever, do, you just don't know and, and what don't, people's lives are. You can't disre, disrespect that. I mean, you're, the compassion in you, the empathy in you, you're going to want to help because you know once you leave, hey, I've already been here three or four times. Once you leave, Chances are you're going to come back, and you just want these people to be safe and out of the situation. So it doesn't come as in, intentionally to, to, to hurt them. Yeah, it's not mean-spirited at all. But domestic violence is a very serious thing, and it's not called domestic fighting. It's not called domestic arguing, domestic violence. And the, the laws here are incredibly strict because over the years it has gotten worse and worse and worse. Yeah, and – Almost 30 years, I've never gone to a dis, dis, you know, domestic harmony call. You know, it's always domestic violence, domestic dispute. Is there domestic harmony? I, I have it in my life, and I know you have it in All yours, right. my okay. friend. There, there, there was when the officers came to my house and removed my ex-husband out the day that... Oh, yeah, that's harmony. That was domestic that was, harmony, that, yes. that was harmony yeah. As, yeah. as you watched them drive off the street? I, I, warned, <laughs> I told the officers, because they had been there four days prior and when he hit my son and they actually hauled him off and he spent 72 in the eval, you know, for mental because he tried to commit suicide, which wasn't true. And then they were called back to the house when he got out and he tried it again. He was basically abusing me and I called and I said, guys, you got to come get him. Otherwise you're going to find a dead body. And, and they you know, made I'm, him leave. I'm so glad you came in on that, Robin, because domestic violence, domestic dispute is in every household at some point i mean we all have relationships that sometimes go up and down we have our peaks and our valley so when the neighbors are listening you know it, it happens to everyone and what's so different about this crime than all these other crimes as a young officer or as an older officer you'll be going to is that you know with the robberies and you know there's this motive there's this 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 intent to to obtain some type of benefit, you know, through illegal means, um, through other types of drunken debauchery. But with domestic, it is so emotionally charged that a good person in any other aspect of life can become a cop's worst nightmare because you're seeing them at their worst. It's the most dangerous car you can go on, I think. Uh, outside of a, a, a traffic stop where you have no idea what you're walking up on, Domestic violence calls when emotions are running that high. And here, here's an example of, of why I'm talking about the dangers. I know of the situation that happened one time that a woman called 911 because she was getting beat up pretty bad by her husband. Well, troll officer got there. And that's one of those situations you don't wait for backup. You get in there and you take care of the situation. And he, this officer entered the home. And when he began to try and take the suspect into custody, who wasn't going to go quietly, well, all of a sudden the woman realized, oh, yes, I love this person, locked the door from the inside so that backup officers couldn't get in. 
and this guy was in the fight for his life. The cop was in the fight for his life. That happened to me. That same exact scenario, I went to a call of a woman, and her head was battered. I mean, this wasn't an argument. This was a beating. And like you know, a lot of cops, you know, it's busy out there, and if I hear a woman screaming, I'm running in. And again, as officers, we're trained to wait for your backup, and we all get it. But you know, you got to do what you got to do in those situations. Kind of goes to the whole school shooting thing. You got to live with yourself. And I couldn't not run in, so I ran in and uh, um, got the guy. And the fight was on. As I'm fighting and throwing him down and so forth, this woman with bleeding profusely from her head absolutely went and locked me in that home. Um, he was able to, at one point, break free of my grasp. Uh, I did have backup co- coming, already had backup coming, but again, she was screaming. And at one point, he was able to get out through, I think, a window. And I still, I, I was having a hard time with the lock, and I was screaming at her, how do I get this door open? And she just sat down. So we're dealing with victims. And again, you talk about victimology. We're talking about victims that have been in a cycle of abuse that now they're protecting their abuser because it's how they're conditioned. And as badly as you may want to be angry at that woman, I actually got it. Uh, she was trying to protect her husband. Um, it's, it's, she needs lots of counseling. She absolutely needs our intervention. And as I, I definitely had some choice words for her in my head. I won't, <laughs> I won't lie. I had some definite choice words. But it is uh, unlike any other crime when you talk about the um, – uh, traffic stops. Yeah, I would put domestic violence as the worst because we know we, for a fact there are weapons in that house. You go in a kitchen, you have steak knives. You go into the bathroom, you got, you know, propellants that can blind you. Every room in that house has, without a doubt, inherent dangers. And they know the terrain, you don't. So, yeah, to me, without a doubt, domestic violence is absolutely the, the scariest. And every officer that responds to domestic violence. One benefit, they know they're in for something that can be heated. They know that, and that's good. Whereas, unfortunately, those traffic stops, older officers or maybe young officers don't, don't realize it could go from, from normal to bad in a split second, and we've seen that with the videos. I want to get your take, Darren, on big topic has been for years, but recently uh, a very tragic story, as it always happens, brings things more into the spotlight when the young police officer with uh, the Gila River Indian community was uh, run over and killed on the side of the one, 101 by the guy uh, texting yeah. and driving. And Horrible. there was a headline this week that the proposed Arizona ban on cell phone use while driving has been approved in the Arizona Senate. And according to the headline, it now faces an uphill battle in the house where lawmakers have been resistant to a statewide action. And lawmakers are elected to do a job by their constituents. I find it hard to believe that that many of our lawmakers have that many constituents saying, no, no, I love texting and driving. I love being a danger to society. I love getting in accidents and risking my life. This is a ridiculous headline to me. And I've grown up here, born and raised in Phoenix, and I have watched great changes. And uh, for those of you who don't live here, uh, for those of you who who do, you might have paid attention to this. They did a a story in 2018, the 20th anniversary of my beloved Arizona Dimebacks. In 1998, 
we had just over 2 million people who lived here. How many live here now? Just over 5 million. We have more than doubled in 20 years. And with that has come an incredible amount of traffic. And you have, it is the worst thing to me. Uh, I, I always talk about inspirational things at the end, and this is one of my biggest battles. My level of anger and frustration and rage comes from driving on these streets every day because the amount of people who weave in and out of traffic, not using their blinkers, speeding, and you have no right to, to risk other people's lives, safety, and time so you can get somewhere three minutes faster. And also, you're just incredibly stupid to risk your own physical safety and your life in that. The texting and driving, we all have families. We all have people that we care about. I think we are either tops or we're in the top three in the country in running uh, red light fatalities and um, uh, with uh, car pedestrian accidents. I just saw, saw the other day uh, Colonel Frank, Frank Milstead, the director of DPS, he put out a tweet. 73 days into the year, 76 deaths on Arizona highways. 70, more than one a day. Now, 37% of those were not wearing the seatbelts. That's a whole other issue, taking your own safety for granted. 25% were, of course, impaired by alcohol. I guarantee you a great number of them were texting and driving. So what are your thoughts on the, It just makes no sense that our lawmakers, an uphill battle. That's a term I'm not real happy about hearing. Yeah, I'm glad they didn't say it's a long road or something like that. Uh, <laughs> bad pun intended. Um, <laughs> You know, I'm going to play devil's advocate because I'm 100% with you on this, Please obviously. Do. But devil's advocate, um, what they're, I think they're trying to say is that there's already laws about inattentive drivers, and this is another law that doesn't need to be in, blah, blah, blah. I think that's what they're saying because I don't think anyone's stupid enough to say, oh, no, you should text and drive. Now, my problem with that, now I'm no longer playing devil's advocate, is when it comes to an, an, an attention, that is for after the fact. That is for when we as police officers go to the, what we call 963, the fatal car collision, and we look at the evidence and we can say, yeah, this was due to uh, an attention. Whether it was a song on the radio, um, the, back when the lighters were all big and they, they drop the lighter and they go and pick it up, whatever it is that's in attention. The, the problem with that is as enforcement it's not a good argument because as we're driving, we don't get to sit in that passenger seat and see the inattention. We don't get to see these things. But as a cop, we can see them on that cell phone because as a driver, and every, in fact, Robin's shaking her head. Every one of you is probably shaking your head. We've seen it. We've seen sometimes the silly stuff of us sitting behind somebody at a green light because they're still on their phone. Maybe we see them weaving in the lane because they're on their phone. We see them cross over into the wrong side of the road because they're on their phone. You can't drive and do anything on your phone at the same time, especially when you're an old fart like me. Uh, so I don't even do it anymore. So here's why I like the law of having um, the no texting. And I like the way it was phrased, hands-free. I think that's important because we do need to make a, a, a clarification in terms of Bluetooth, which, um, you know, again, I'm old, so I don't even understand that concept. But, yeah, I get it. <laughs> it's out there. You can talk and you can drive. We can sing on the radio and drive. So we get it. But you can't 
have your eyes off the road. No. So having this law is good. And I'll say this. I think this law is more important than a seatbelt law. This texting, this hands-free driving, and more importantly, eyes on the road driving, allows you to keep the road safe. Whereas to not to have this law means that somebody could, you know, think they can because there's not a law to prohibit, if you will. Right. By having this law, it's part of an education measure. It's letting you, the public, understand, especially those young drivers. And I think everyone listening will agree. The young drivers live in this world where they're, it's always, they're always on the phone. They're, and now they're driving, and that impulse is there. So to say it's against the law helps them understand they can't do it. And I think this is more important than a seatbelt law because seatbelt law is only, is only really protecting two things. One is you, the occupant. Is protecting you against your stupidity, not wearing. A yeah, I was say there doesn't need to be a law against that kind of right. stupidity. Right, you and, put it's, your and it's insurance. It helps insurance because yeah, of it course. clearly saves lives. It clearly, you know, the, the whole cost, uh, you know, insurance. This law will save other people's lives. So how can you, as any true individual in politics in our legislature, better said? can vote against this and not support this because you are absolutely uh, endangering our lives because of, of the young people that are growing up into this um, mobile-friendly, obsessed world that they live in. We need to make a law so they understand right from the get-go, right from when they get their driver's license, you cannot be on your phone and drive at the same time. You will end up killing someone. And that's what should be the focus and the, the point of this law. You know, one of the... Worst things, you can look at laws across the board. You can look at our society across the board. We always are reactive instead of proactive. We always lock the gate after the horse gets stolen. And a law like this in place, as time goes by, when people like me and you at our age are no longer here, we are going to have years and decades worth of this law being in place, and you're going to see those changes in the future. My, uh, my youngest son just went through driving school. I put him in the Institute for Driver Safety, an incredible, incredible organization. It is probably the best money I ever spent because it's classroom, but then it's also many, many hours of on-the-road instruction with a driving instructor. A anyway, my point of this is on the classroom part, I didn't know what to expect. I mean, I haven't been to driver's ed in 30 years. So he came home and he told me, he said, Dad, they showed hours upon hours of the most graphic images and videos of teenagers texting and driving and what happened them. to their bodies. And he was so impacted by this, not in a, I'm going to have nightmares, not that was gross. It made a difference, like, there's no way I'm going to text and drive. Now, times that by days and years and decades, eventually we will make a difference in the actions that are taking place right now. So this and law, the law just adds law, to that. It does. It, it puts things in place where you're teaching kids from the time they're born. It's the law. I knew the laws I knew of when I was a kid, I still follow today. Kids, if they're taught that at a young age, like my son right now, your kids do what they watch their parents do. Well, my son is not going to be texting and driving. He better not be texting and driving. His children are going to watch that and on and on and on. And eventually, these unnecessary accidents prevent. We're talking about things that are preventable. Come on. And, and the, the horror, and we can talk about that, that, that bless his heart, that officer who, who died on that stretch of roadway. 
I also feel bad, and this is probably horrible for me to admit to, I feel bad for that texter. He killed a life, and that was not what he woke up in the morning thinking he was going to do. It's, it's, it, it doesn't negate his culpability. It doesn't negate anything as far as acts, but nope. he could have been the best person in the world, and he made a horrible, horrific mistake. And I bet he'd be the first one to say, I wish there was a law, because it might have made me think twice about doing what I did. And guess what, folks? There's good people out there that are texting and driving right as we speak. Oh, of course. Of and course. they're good people, so we can save two lives. We can save two families. We can save the ripple effect going on. So I think it's a good law for all those reasons as yeah. well, my friend. Yeah, you've, I mean, I, when you first said that, uh, my initial thought was, I don't feel bad for him at all. I hope he, and it's easy not to. Yeah, it's easy not to. But I think the the point that you really touch on is, you know, criminals who go out intentionally, like, I'm going to rob the Circle K, I'm going to shoot the clerk, or the people that we've talked about in the past with domestic violence or things like that. Nobody says, I am going to hurt or kill somebody today. By texting. Uh, just some random person I don't know. By texting, nobody says that. So that's a very good point. It definitely destroys two families, All two lives, lives, and the ripple effect can go on and on forever. So, again, I hate talking politics in, at any level, and I'm not going to, but this law does not need to be facing an uphill battle. We need to rein this in, and uh, I, I would be a strong advocate for, yeah. for uh, not texting and driving. Again, cell phone use in cars you can break it down. Bluetooth. I, I can. I can talk to somebody in the passenger seat. Just as you can teach me well how to do that. I can, yes, <laughs> so I can talk on the on the phone. But as long as your eyes are on the road, your hands are on the wheel, and Thank wear you. your seatbelt. Yes. Peace. Awesome. Yes. yes. Awesome. All right. We will be right back, ladies and gentlemen, with an awesome heroic story, and of course, Darren's stupid suspects, which is by far my favorite because you can't fix it, and it's entertaining. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. I remember the moment. moment. I'll never forget that moment. As long as I live. As long as I live. Several of us were working to rescue a family. The house collapsed on top of the cellar door and trapped them. We had to use Humvees and heavy machinery to move massive trees and debris. We got them out. We helped a lot of people out. It felt good to know I could really make a difference. Because I'm a citizen soldier in the National Guard. Be there the moment your community needs you. Learn more at NationalGuard.com. Sponsored by the Arizona National Guard. Aired by the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. Move over, AZ. Arizona's move over law requires you to move over or slow down when you drive past any vehicle pulled over with flashing lights. Remember, every vehicle, every time. Move over, AZ. Sponsored by ADOT in partnership with the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. You're listening to Batch Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Batch Boys. You know, this is one of my favorite points of, this, of all our shows is where I get to listen to Jason tell a heroic headline, then I'll follow up with my stupid suspect story, and then the best part of the day is an inspirational message from Jason. Uh, but we first, we need to get to the heroic headline. And do you have a special heroic headline for us to, uh, I, today, my friend? I have a very special one again this week, and I agree with you. It's one of my favorite parts just because... Heroes come in all forms, all shapes and sizes, not necessarily wearing a uniform. And today's story is, is really great. It's about an Illinois mom, Abby Dunkel, had long waited to be a kidney donor. 
She long awaited wow. to be a donor, not a recipient. How beautiful. It, it's incredible. The gift of life. Yeah. Just, and the, every the, cop the, can relate to that because we all want to save lives out there. And this is an individual that has that same sense of community. It, it's the greatest thing. When a dear friend died 19 years ago and her organs were donated, Abby ended up meeting the man who got her friend's kidney. And ever since, she wanted to bestow the life-saving gift to someone else. Well, last summer, she saw the opportunity present itself in the form of a Facebook post about Ryan Armistead, a police officer in Missouri who was in desperate need of a kidney transplant. She said the fact that he is a stranger doesn't matter to me, Dunkel told Inside Edition. Armistead was diagnosed four years ago with a rare autoimmune disorder that damaged his kidneys beyond repair. Six months later, he was on dialysis five days a week for three hours a day, a devastating regime that continued until last month when he received a kidney from Dunkel. After seeing the Facebook post about Armistead's problems, she began the medical test that would determine whether or not her organ was a match for him. And when everything came back positive, Abby messaged Armistead. In Missouri, Armistead and his wife, Jessica, were scrolling through his phone when Dunkel's message popped up. He said, I literally fell to my knees and broke down in tears. And so did my wife. Just before Christmas, Dunkel and her husband came to Armistead's home just to see my machine and what I had to go through. That's when it hit a home that this was the real deal. The two couples talked about their children. Dunkel has two boys, and the Armisteads have a five-year-old son, and about their lives and jobs. And then they went to lunch together. We all just kind of hit it off. He's just a regular guy. This could happen to anyone. On January 22nd, they were both wheeled into surgery at Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis. Everything went well, and two weeks later, life seems mighty precious to both of them. I'm doing great, and I feel amazing, Armistead said. I'm up, moving around. I just feel a whole lot better. He has an 18-inch incision from the transplant. It's a little sore, but what do you expect? Dunkel feels a little tired, and her body adjusts to having one kidney, but she was told to expect that at first. I'm feeling really good, she said, and I'm doing really well. The gift of life. Thank you, Abby. Thank you, to Deputy Armistead. Uh, now he will be able to continue his career, continue being a father, the gift of life. I tell people all the time I was a tissue recipient, saved my life. I had a child afterwards. It has no logical end. It can go on and on forever. I love that idea of the, uh, uh, the rock in the pond with the uh, ripples because she saved yeah. his life. And now as a cop, who knows how many lives he's going to impact or save. Yeah, uh, the ripple effect is it's goes, beautiful. It goes forever. It does. Now from this beautiful moment to a stupid suspect. What a, <laughs> what a sweet segue, really. Uh, our case that we're going to talk about, uh, let's talk from the vantage point of a good citizen. Our good citizen is Brandon Case. And Brandon is en route to the mid-first bank in Oklahoma City where he lives. And this happened uh, about two weeks ago. So he is going to mid-first bank in Oklahoma on business. When he shows up, he sees so many swarming police cars. Uh, there's cops everywhere. And he sees three bank robbers being arrested. Now, what is so significant about this is that, well, I'll just read it right from the page. Uh, quote, I turn the corner and come up on mid-first bank, and I see all these cop cars, Case said. I'm like, this is not normal. The Oklahoma City Police haven't released the identities of the, the suspects involved. Otherwise, I'd throw out their names big time. Uh, nor have they outlined what the individuals did once they got into the bank. 
But uh, the, our, our buddy, Brandon Case, was thinking he was waiting for these passengers when everything started to unfold. He saw the three subjects handcuffed and put in the back of the cop cars. Uh, he, he said it was amazing. And then the police officer walked over to him and he said, did they rob a bank or something? And the officer said, um, yeah, they, they attempted. Um, and that's when Brandon Case told the police officer, well, they called me for their getaway. I'm an Uber driver. And I showed up and that's them. That We get a picture of who they are. They called me to be their Uber driver for their getaway. He said it gives him a really unusual feeling. Uh, had the cops not gotten there before him, who knows how this could have turned out? And he said, it could have turned out completely different. He said, quote, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. Now, as stupid as that may be, the story continues. You see, the reason they were arrested, because not only did they get an Uber for their getaway driver, that's right. They got an Uber to even get them to the bank. And they're so <laughs> stupid that they were talking about the crime in front of the Uber driver. So the Uber driver's listening to him talk about this, this bank robbery, the great heist. And when the Uber driver dropped him off, he, he, two seconds later, he's on the phone with the police telling him about these stupid three suspects in his car. Great job. The cops show up and the stupid suspects are on the side of the bank discussing how they're going to do this. It's a great story. Probably not. Story. How, how did the cops get here? Why are the cops here? How did they know? That's, that's how. That's how stupid they might be. It could be. Zoned could out be. they were on the crime. Yes. yes. Uh, that so, Uber driver. Good job. Thank heavens for stupid suspects and good great. Uber drivers. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Paying attention. <laughs> and now, I think this is a moment that I've always been waiting for. And I'm sure you as listening audience is. This is the inspirational message that Jason shares with us each week. It's the perfect way to close the show. And I'm excited because I know this one is particularly one close and near and dear to your heart, my friend. This one is near and dear to my heart. Every day, talk about it all the time. You got to find inspiration. One of my biggest inspirations is a guy named Jason Redman, R-E-D-M-A-N. You can look him up online. Go to his website. He's a phenomenal speaker. I'm involved with his Eagle Rise Speakers Bureau. And I've met Jason. He's one of these guys. And I'm going to get pretty fired up sharing this story with you because he just, you, you cannot have a bad day if you know who Jason is, if you know his story, and you know what he stands for. And I want to share with you, Jason was a lieutenant in the Navy, and he was a Navy SEAL. And there's no secret that I love our military, and I am completely enamored and in awe of navy seals oh but I'm with you, what you what you see whenever people talk about navy seals is most of the times you're seeing their highlight reel you don't see the behind the scenes the sacrifice that they go through to achieve their dreams and goals i mean buds training alone what they go through with hell week i there's no way i could do it and it, it's just it's pretty impressive so jason achieved his dream and he's out there serving our country and he's doing very high level top secret the ultimate Badass, right? As a Navy SEAL. 2006, he's on a mission and is involved in an ambush where he is shot with machine gun fire. Oh my gosh. Several rounds hit Jason. One of them entered the rear of his jaw and came out his nose. Oh. Literally blew off a good portion of his face. Oh, bless his he heart. was attended to on the battlefield transferred into a hospital back here in the States and began his long recovery process. And very early on in that recovery process, 
I want to read to you, this is the sign on the door. That's what it's known as. Jason had this written, and he had it mounted on the outside of the door. This is unbelievable. Attention to all who enter here. If you are coming into this room with sorrow or to feel sorry for my wounds, go elsewhere. The wounds I received, I got in a job I love, doing it for people I love, supporting the freedom of a country I deeply love. I am incredibly tough, and I will make a full recovery. What is full? That is the absolute utmost. Physically, my body has the ability to recover. Then I will push about 20% further through sheer mental tenacity. This room you are about to enter is a room of fun, optimism, and intense, rapid regrowth. If you are not prepared for that, go elsewhere. Let me tell you something. I didn't go through anything quite like him, but I obviously went through a critical incident. It took me almost a year to get my burnt head out of my unburned ass. This guy had this sign on his door weeks after his shooting. That is unbelievable. And he still lives by that mantra and he's doing his best to change the world. I encourage you go Learn about Jason Redmond. Watch his YouTube videos. Listen to the guy talk. He will make you want to run through a brick wall. He inspires me every single day. I wear his T-shirts proudly, and I'm very proud to be a part of his Speaker's Bureau. You know, we talk about victims and how you don't have to be a victim out there. You can be a survivor. That, it goes to that, where he's, he's a survivor. I mean, he had that in day one. That's amazing. Yeah, all the sacrifice that he went through to even get that job, and then, and obviously... Those individuals know that it can end sure. very badly. But he doesn't blame the ambush on bad intelligence. He doesn't blame it on anybody else doing something wrong. It happened. Bad things happened. His, his life changed. He retired from the Navy. And now his path may have changed, but his purpose didn't. And his purpose is to support and love his fellow man. And it's just... It, it, Jason, thank you so much for your service and See, for inspiring us. Jason, you're my day. hero, and this guy's your hero. The, the si- <laughs> and he's my hero, the, too. Right? He inspires me and brings me to tears Listen, every time. The sign on the door, you got it. You got to check it out. You are all going to love it. I tell you what, I, uh, I just love this show. Darren, you're so awesome. Robin, you make Rock and Robin. Rock and Robin <sighs> makes this show so easy. I'm uh, back at you, Jason. Uh, Want to make her laugh and cry every week, and we're continuing to do that. All of you have a blessed week. Thank you so very much. Batch Boys. Thanks for listening to Batch Boys. <laughs> Stories, insights, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Batch Boys, heard weekly and worldwide on Star Worldwide Networks and all mobile devices. Batch Boys.